Hey guys, Jack here. No announcements this week, just a quick thanks to our partners at Solve4Y who are sponsoring today's episode. Those guys are currently involved in a cash game academy out in Vegas. Uh, I'm not there this time, but I will be at the next academy, which is a tournament academy, coming up this September. So hope to see some of you guys out there. Uh, in the meantime, we have a fantastic episode for you this week. Uh, I'm joined by Jen Jahadi, who is really fun to talk poker with and very, very smart. Both of those things should be on display uh, in this episode. And so thank you guys again for tuning in and enjoy. Hello and welcome. I am joined here by a fantastic guest, someone I've been trying to get on the podcast for a little while now, and we're finally making it happen. Uh, this is right after the World Series, and I'm joined here by Jen Shahadi. Jen, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's great to be on the show. So Jen was just telling me about some monochrome board madness that she wants to get into, so I'm just going to turn over the floor to her and have her set up the scene. Well, I, I realized when you invited me onto the show that... I've always kind of been obsessed with monochrome boards and it occurred to me that this wasn't entirely coincidental and that there might be other listeners who share this obsession. Um, when I go back to the very first time I started using game theory solvers, I actually remember that the first board I, I put in was uh, a monochrome track texture and coming from a chess background, I feel like I kind of unlocked the reason why that is and why these boards appeal to me so much from a study point of view. And I think the reason is that they're very um, puzzle-oriented. The uh, Run It Once Pro, I also make videos for Run It Once occasionally. Uh, Dan DeVoris had a series called uh, Puzzles vs. Mysteries, where he talks about how poker players are usually coming from the game from either a background of puzzles or mysteries, and the distinction is based on a, a Gladwell book. And usually the puzzlers are, are really good at game theory and kind of like just crunching numbers, looking at ham combinations, and the, the mystery solvers are on the other side, more trying to create chaos, solve chaotic um, situations and put people into chaotic situations. Obviously, elite poker players tend to be like good at both aspects. Um, where this ties into monochrome boards is that they're they're really interesting to, to to study because you can kind of get like a lot of heuristics that will help you kind of quickly. Um, one thing that you'll you'll um, notice really quickly if you study a monochrome board is that it's really hard for people to meet the minimum defense frequency. So, for instance especially if you use small bet sizing. So in the one hand that I had in the WSOP main event, I opened hijack and the button flatted and this big blind folded. This was pretty deep. You know, we are just on day two. Um, everybody has, everybody's pretty much like um, 60 to 100 bigs deep. Uh, I do think that the, the guy I was playing against was not playing any other hands. Um, this was the first hand that I played with him, and we've been playing for about an hour. So it doesn't necessarily mean all that much, right? He could have just been card dead. And he seems like he was possibly a recreational player, but, you know, maybe a, a serious recreational player, as I guess if you're playing in the 10K main event, often the, the wrecks fall into that category, right? Kind of. <laughs> they they can. They Not can. always, Def but yeah, no. some, um, certainly sometimes. You would think more would. Yeah, that's true. 
But this guy seemed like he was probably in that category. Maybe also by the fact that he seemed patient and he wasn't playing a lot of hands. I also, uh, he wasn't like super splashy or anything like that. Anyway, the, the flop was jack five, deuce, and all of the cards were spades. Uh, th- yeah, this is just the kind of spot that I feel like I've really looked at a lot. And I think here in the hijack, it's totally fine to just check your whole range or to bet really small and then also check. But you don't really see a lot of large bet sizings on flops like this. No, my strategy in these boards is the preflop aggressor tends to be the c-bet 100% to a smaller sizing because of what you said about minimum defense frequency and the fact that I think a lot of players just want to shy away from these boards. It's a little scary, I think, especially to the player type you're describing. And I think they tend to give up with some sort of what I would think are obscene hands to give up with, like top hair, not great kicker. Um, no, really? <laughs> like, if you, at what point in the hand? You mean, like, the turn? On the flop. No, stop. No, especially in, like, this kind of situation. <laughs> you know, this is, you said this is day one of the main event? Day two, actually. Day two. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm just, uh, I just assumed when you said that you meant the turn, not the flop. Oh, <laughs> I no, thought you I, meant, like, the turn of the river. <laughs> no, I think by the river, you're up against a pretty strong range. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally agree in certain situations. I mean, I do think, like, in theory, versus a button flat, it's certainly fine to, like, check a lot of hands, maybe even check all hands. If, if you were to choose between, like, checking range or betting kind of big, you might just choose to check. But if you can, this option of just betting really small, when you say that you bet small and flops like this a lot in these spots, how small do you mean? It depends on if I have a hand that can barrel. If I have a hand that I'm uncomfortable barreling, then I'll normally bet, I guess in a tournament setting, something like 40%. A size I'm confident is going to get, you know, it's going to instantly profit just based on the amount that my opponent's going to fold. And then with a plan to shut down on most turns. With at least one spade in my hand, I'm probably betting twice most of the time. And so I might size down a little bit more in a tournament, something like 30%, 35%. Okay, so you would go somewhere between 30 and 40%. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's, I think 30% is a good strategy. I try not um, to, in a situation where I'm making a play that's supposed to get an exploitative amount of folds, I try not to size too small since I don't want my opponent to think too hard. Um, mm-hmm, interesting. Yeah, that's, that's like there's this I this is concept even if like in theory I suppose in theory the correct sizing here is like really tiny like twenty five percent or something. It's kind of interesting that the sizes can get so small that it can almost seem like you're trying to humiliate your opponent or something, and you don't really want to be that um, you don't want to be that obvious if you're trying to induce mistakes, right? Right. I think the beauty of staying within the set of standard sizings is that you don't trigger that kind of thought. It all feels very routine to your opponent. And so it's good to be deliberate about when you want to trigger thought, since I think plenty of times triggering thought is actually going to lead to more mistakes. But I think on a board like this, where people have these sort of insane tendencies to overfold the flop, I don't want to provoke that thought. Yeah, that's really interesting, though, that you think some people um, fold top pair, no spade in these spots. 
and you've seen uh, evidence of that because, yeah, I mean, in my work on these slaps, it's like actually you you need to defend just any pair, you know, any spade, straight draws. It's like just really, really hard to meet the um, if MDF if you're not being really creative with your calls or raises. And I feel like this is such an interesting contrast to the exact opposite board, the pure rainbow in which sometimes you can actually end up over-defending just because there's so many, like, backdoor flush draws, right? Like, the old joke about how you have two flush draws, right, <laughs> um, actually starts to really come into play when you study rainbow boards because you start start just, like, you know, you, if you, especially if you're the type to call and flat a lot of suited hands, you start seeing that, like, you're you're able to call with almost anything, right? That sure. wraps around. I mean, and so the, the, the monochrome... And the monochrome is really the opposite, where you really have to create, you really have to stretch to find calls sometimes, right? Yeah, and I think um, <laughs> many people are not stretching very far to find those calls. Yeah, interesting. So anyway, I checked in this flop, and my opponent checked back, and then the turn was completed the flush. So there's four spades in the board, right? The, um, the total opposite of a full rainbow. It's only going to happen like a little over 1% of the time. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I don't, yeah, that, I don't remember if you've said what you had. Uh, not that you need to, but... No, no, I didn't say yet. Okay, great. But um, on the turn, I bet around 40%, and my opponent raised. So this is kind of came as a surprise to me, because I'm not even really sure that uh, there should be like a lot of raises here. Like, What do you think? Like, What goes through your head when your opponent raises on that turn? And do you think that they should have a lot of raises? Well, I think it depends on what size you're raising to. But no, I don't think that there should be a lot of raises. It doesn't strike me as a board that favors the player in position, particularly. It's it's not extremely dynamic, since, you know, a lot of hands... There's going to be a lot of situations on the turn already where two competing hands have 100% equity and zero equity, you know, at a high frequency. So that's that's unusual. Exactly. That's a very unusual poker thing. And if this happened more in poker... It would be a really problem problem of the game, you know. Yeah, no, it's a good because it would become happen. a it would become like a game where you just had like a basically destroy all card, and when you have these like four flush boards, you get that, and it's almost very unpoker like. It feels like it's almost like you're playing another game when you have these types of boards. I feel it's it's uh it's rare, and one of the things that makes poker so wonderful is that you don't have those situations too often. So and did I think you say what size? Um, he, be, he made a, I, he, I, I bet 40% and he made it a little more than two and a half X my, my size. So I, I, I bet about 40% and he made it like, I made it like three K. He made it eight K. All right. I like that sizing. I think going bigger doesn't make a lot of sense unless we want to like totally pull out on the flop or sorry, on the turn. And I don't know that that makes sense either. Since what's nice about raising small in position here is that you can buy yourself a price with like some of your flushes against the portion of your range that is winning, but is going to either pot control or flat in order to have the nuts in your range on the river. And then I think if your opponent bets again on the river, that should be a larger sizing that's more polarized. And so what, what's tricky about this spot is bluff selection. I'm, so I'm curious, like in your studying 
what kinds of hands and what kinds of sizing, sorry, what kind of bluffs is the software choosing and what sizing is it choosing in a spot like this? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I was, I was curious about that when I saw this raise. I was like, okay, what kind of bluffs here make sense? And, you know, I came up with the idea before looking at the solvers um, with this exact spot, I, which, you know, assumes that I have a good sense of his pre-flap range, which, you know, could be wrong, of course, but it's still fun to kind of play with. I, I was thinking, you know, something like king, queen, red, queen, king, queen would make a lot of sense because mm-hmm. it blocks like the ace, king of spades, the ace, queen of spades. I mean, it's basically a spot where it, there aren't any natural bluffs, which I think is, you know, a really great term. Um, natural bluff meaning a bluff that's like really obvious bluff candidate. And that's because, of course, it's like a four flush board and your bluffs aren't going to have any equity. Right. So it's like. Unless, okay, there could be some exceptions where your bluffs have a little bit of equity if I'm, like, heroing, but generally they're not going to have equity, right? So when you're picking your bluffs, you're just trying to randomly pick something with some kind of blocker effect, right? So king-queen or red king-queen would make a lot of sense, right? But it's you have to be kind of – you have to kind of thought of these spots to do that because otherwise you're just not going to ever have bluffs, right? Because – it's not something that comes to you quickly unless you're coming at poker from just like a pure instinct point of view. And you're just like, Hey, you don't have it a lot. So F you. Right. Yeah. So I I find pretty interesting that like, if you're a thinking player, but you haven't really thought about this exact spot, you're just not going to be able to bluff. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's hard to have the right number of bluffs, especially. I mean, I think there will be plenty of players who can pull the trigger here and say like, maybe with, incorrect logic think to themselves that your check on the flop caps your range uh, i mean that doesn't strike me as true at all and it's clearly not based on what you've said about your strategy but I, I can imagine a player of this description seeing the check on the flop and then the 40 percent uh bet on the turn as weakness and decide to bluff but i think they're very unlikely to bluff with exactly a hand like red king queen and instead would be likely to sort of bluff with everything (laughs) and so this is the type of spot where i'm guessing like your opponent's either likely to have just like the king high flush or better or perhaps that value range with just way too many bluffs and i actually think there's a case to be made especially in a tournament like the main event to just kind of auto three bet this spot because so I just think a lot of players are going to give up with everything that's not the ace of spades. Interesting. Or the potentially the king of spades. Although I do think that the king and the ace of spades... Well, I really think the king of spades is just going to call a lot this bet anyway on the turn. I agree. I think it's, it's a lot of like nuts or air type situation. Um, in terms of what he should bluff with, I think that besides the red king queen, I think another potential candidate is something with uh, a pair in it just to like block sets that would probably bet call, right? Or who would that might check call, but might bet call the turn. Uh, obviously aren't going to bet fold, certainly not to that sizing, but yeah, that's, that's basically, those are basically the, like the candidates and you're right. It's one of those classic spots in poker where it's very hard to get the right bluff combinations unless you study it a lot because if you have just a general idea of types of hands that you should bluff with, you might over bluff. And if you haven't thought about it at all, then you'll never bluff. So getting it in between is like kind of an art form and it requires like some kind of randomization technique, 
which is pretty tough. And I'm not even saying it's good to do because playing live, you might just want to go with your gut and over bluff or under bluff based on your feel, right? But it, I, I, I do kind of agree with that statement that it's it's really easy to overdo it in either direction in this situation. That said, in this particular case, my read was that um, he he made the play pretty quickly and my read on his previous play, having not played any hands and just like player profiling was that he was likely pretty strong. And I also think that just the button flatting range here does have a lot of high card hands with the, the, you know, the, the, the hands that they would quickly flat the button with include a lot of the, I would, the hands that I would basically assume they would almost 100% flat the button with without thinking about other options would probably be like King Queen, Ace Jack, Ace, what, and some suited, suited Broadways and suited Ace X. I would imagine people would at least consider three betting Ace Queen. And then mm-hmm. with King Jack, I would assume they would think about folding or three betting. Uh, what, what, what is, what are your thoughts on those like pre-flop rangings of, a recreational player who looks like he's paying attention, right, and hasn't really played any hands yet. Um, would you agree with those those ranges? And obviously, I didn't mention the small pairs, but those as well. It shouldn't be underestimated the ability for this player type to flat hands like ace queen and ace king in this situation. Although I think ace king is a stretch. Yeah, no, I agree about ace-queen. I do agree about ace-queen. I'm just saying I feel like there's sometimes you get that sense that they're considering three-betting at least, that they might not just like, I'm not overstating my live tells, you know, I, just because somebody immediately flats there. I'm not saying they can't have ace-queen. I might just slightly discount it, that's all. I think that's fair, um, especially if they checked their cards right before they acted. I think that would be even more indicative that they don't have Ace queen. Yeah, I think king jacks are likely. King jack here makes a lot of sense with the king of spades. I'd I'd imagine that a lot of players are going to bet their ace x of spades. Should I ace x with the ace of spades with no pair on the flop? I think it's a hand that people have a lot of comfort betting and don't necessarily see like a lot of reason to slow play that kind of hand or to include it in a checking range? Mm, I mean, yeah, it's really hard to say. I think I would agree with that. I, I'm not sure what weight I would put to it, but I would certainly... I, I, you're saying you would put like 80% of their um, ace-x suited... I mean, their, their uh, ace-x of spades hands in the checking, in the, in the betting range on the flop? Or would you say like... Well, like when you say you usually would think that... I don't know, what does that mean? 80% or 60%? Like, what does it mean? I would be comfortable saying that, like, near 80% of ace of spades, x not of spades, that's not a jack, bets the flop. I think ace-jack with the ace of spades is a hand that gets checked a lot. And I think that yeah. the flush itself gets checked a fair amount. All right. Um, yeah, it's pretty interesting that these uh, these assessments that you're making. You play... You play a lot of cash games as well, right? That's what mostly what you play, or do you usually play like a combination of tournaments and cash? I've been shifting more to tournaments over the last year, but my background is definitely cash. And in, but I'm trying to put myself into main event mode, which I was just playing for several days and playing a lot of tournaments before. So I'm really just saying this from the tournament framework. If I had to put my cash hat on, 
then I think there's a lot more possibilities. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I And then I, I think that one thing that really interested me about this year's main event was that I wasn't involved in as many multi-way pots as I'm used to in tournaments, which I guess maybe makes sense in the main where people are a little bit more um, risk-averse and loss-averse. So they're not like throwing in there with uh, just any random suited cards in the big line as much as I was used to seeing. And maybe this is also just like a, a trend that is changing where people were really defending the big line very staunchly. And now I feel like I'm seeing a bit of a reversal where maybe I'm getting in heads up plots a tiny bit more often. Did you notice that as well? Because I, I, I often found um, like for instance, a, a different hand also with a four flush on the turn that I played in the PCA main event was a, a multi-way three-way pot and in general i just felt that i saw a little bit less of that than i've been used to seeing lately well i i felt like three bet frequencies were really high across the board mm-hmm. and i think well that, of course that's going to reduce the number of multi-way pots yeah um i think that was a big part of it when i was at tables where there were fewer three bet pots then i didn't see that same trend I definitely ran pretty hot in terms of like table draws during the main specifically. And so I had a number of multi-way pots. What I would say about this player type, which I think is pretty relevant here, is that I find that this player type is generally value heavy, but when they bluff, it tends to be not in a very calculated way, which is, we've sort of brought that up but I think it's actually extremely relevant against this profile specifically since it fits their general bluffing tendencies, not just on this type of, type of texture. And so I, I'm trying to think of hands that get here that aren't sort of clearly in a bluff-catching situation that wouldn't want a 3-bet small in this situation. Like, I really feel like if you showed up here with just air, I would like 3-betting. Interesting. Yeah. I guess it just depends on your feel for whether the player is likely to be bluffing much in this situation. But I, I agree that you, if, I see what you're saying that like if they have the idea of bluffing because the, it's difficult to calibrate that correctly, that you're just going to take a shot at the pot with three betting because even if they're only bluffing some small portion of the time when they are bluffing they're over bluffing so that factors into your decision so that's a, that isn't that's an interesting way to look at it which i feel like is very mathematical and sensible in a way that combined with the fact that i think in the main event players holding like the king of spades or i guess maybe the queen of spades although i think that's pretty unlikely anyway although i do think those hands can sometimes raise to buy a showdown but I think those non-nut uh, flushes are just very likely to fold early in this hand. I don't think players... I don't think this player type subscribes to the it sometimes makes sense to call one and fold the next street approach to poker and rather tends to try and get off cheaply when they know they're not going to call down. And I don't think many players are expecting you to race small here and then give up on the river. It's just not in sort of the fear-based mindset that so many of these players have. And so I think you can just leverage a lot of fold equity against the sort of large spaz bluff range that comes a small percentage of the time and potential non-nut value raises that are trying to buy showdown or potentially get value, but I think more likely to buy showdown. 
Yeah, interesting. I, it's it's so tough because in the main event, there's so many different types of amateur players, some of whom never bluff and some of whom seriously over bluff. I, I think that, you know, we encounter uh, so many interesting players in the main that we really wish we could just play this tournament over and over again because the amounts of like insight that you get from this tournament is is so extraordinary and in general like I always find myself especially in the main so exhausted at the end of the day from thinking I another thought I had about um flush boards in general which I'm not sure if you've played any short deck I'm dying to play some myself have you no I mean I've watched the game that happened on Triton Poker and it was just really awesome, and I, I definitely want to play it. I'm looking for an opportunity. I've been playing more like <laughs> I've been playing a lot of other games that are really stupid. Um, like what? Like Dramaha and okay, other draw games um, and split pot games. But I haven't no, I haven't put on my short deck hat at all from a study standpoint, just as a fan. Yeah, I haven't really studied it too much either myself. But I did. I have just thought about it a little bit and. I think that uh, I read somewhere that in some of the short deck games, I believe I read this somewhere. Maybe I just thought of it myself. I'm sure. I'm pretty sure I read it though. That sometimes a, a straight beats a flush, which I think is like a really fascinating way to play a home game. I, I think, know that you read that as well. Well, my understanding is, I don't know about the straight beating a flush. I know flushes beat full houses generally. Oh, that might have been it. Okay, yeah. that flushes beat full houses. I know that I remember hearing a change of roles. Yeah, that's I think interesting. because you know you have such like a density at each rank of card compared to hold'em, full houses just occur more often. And I think obviously straights do as well, and then flushes go up in value. Yes, yeah, sure, because the straights wrap around the uh, the deck. Yeah, it's not like you can only have a straight with uh, the normal rankings, right? Or you just the density of rank. The fact that you're going to get connectors much more often and boards with three to a straight much more often. It's interesting because in open face poker, which I used to play, you know, all the time, there used to be a, a, some people who thought that before the rules got really codified, some people who really thought that a straight should be to flush in that game as well. So I always thought that would be an interesting home game, actually, to like just you know try playing poker that way and see how much it changes, ranges, and changes the game. It's interesting that you wouldn't have a case exactly like this where there's one nut card if you did that, and I think it would be really interesting. Hmm. Well, keep me posted. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that any. It's funny how I really think that in poker, in No Limit Hold'em, like. The idea of just changing one very simple rule is very appealing to me rather than like trying to change the game very drastically. And that's why this like big blind Annie to me is very appealing because it's like a simple twist. I don't know if you would say that like the straight being a flush is the same, but it also is just like just a little bit of a twist rather than trying to completely change all the rules or add something like really strange. No, I totally agree. I actually... So I was staying in a house this summer with some really great poker players and the type of poker players who really enjoy experimenting with new games. And so we did a good amount of iterating this summer. And I, I think it's a really good way to stretch your brain and also improve as a poker player is to consider these other things. Because, I mean, and this sort of gets to the conversation we're having now where 
monotone boards are just kind of like a different, they're almost a different game. It's, and it's not as, it's not as fun as we've alluded to, you know, with all the zero equity hands that arrive at the turn, but it is sort of just like a toy game. And a lot of the games that you come up with are flawed in some way. You know, they're not as good as the games that have established themselves, but trying to figure those out in real time, I think is really useful. Yeah, another game that I came up with the other day is the idea of bargaining for certain lines that you can and can't take. And I thought, you know, this in particular would be a great way to study poker, to have like a poker clinic where you have to buy and sell the options of playing different lines. So like, for instance, maybe you won't be able to three bet and I won't be able to barrel turns. And then like we have to like play a heads up match where we both have like different powers and that's like part of the game, like the negotiation stage where you sell and buy certain powers. And I think what you'll find if you play a game like this is that if you take out one or two options, especially if they're on earlier streets, it's not going to change things as much as you think that will, because you're just going to adjust other parts of your tree, you know, right. to, especially in heads up, like if you are not allowed to do something, if you're not allowed to like check raise the flop then you're going to start like donking the flop a lot and donking turns a lot. So you're going to be able to make up for your weaknesses with the the previous or the subsequent street, which I think is really interesting because it shows how much room there is to be creative in poker with, you know, any kind of deficiency or any kind of mistake that you make that a lot of times you can make up for it in future or previous streets. And so I, I just thought that like, a game like that would really force you to think about all the different lines you are taking and you aren't taking. And so yeah. I think I'm going to try it maybe in like a, some kind of like educational format. That'd be really cool. And I think what makes that more interesting than just sort of like imposing a rule on yourself without everyone being aware of it is the sort of meta around the fact that everyone knows you can't take certain actions. And so they might perceive like a check on a certain street very differently if they know that like on the next street, you're not allowed to check raise or really, really any sort of restriction is going to add new meaning to every other action. Well, and yeah, by, by thinking about the buying and selling of this, I think what you're also going to see is that there's some lines that you're not really taking very much at all already. So you're already selling a part of the game tree without really being conscious of it. And that's like, uh, that would be basically the idea to open people's eyes to that. Like you're already not doing this and maybe that's okay. Maybe it's totally okay not to have a donking range very often. You know, if you're playing big blind, you know, if you're just defending your big blind versus late position open, maybe it's okay. Maybe you're not losing a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you start truncating too many branches, now you're like, you're just playing a very, um, simplistic version of poker. And it's almost like, there's all these different types of poker being played at the same time. Some with like all these different branches and some where people have just like cut off too many branches and they're still playing the same game, but it's kind of not really the same game. You know, it's like they, they agreed to like all these negotiations, but that's, they, they didn't, they didn't have to sell all of those things. So a lot of times when I'm watching a poker game, these sort of coordinated partner dance that's occurring bothers me a little bit. And a lot of those dance steps are definitely mathematically rooted, and it's understandable why the game is unfolding the way it is. But I think people are a little bit too complacent in allowing hands to unfold along like 
very expected lines, both in terms of the sequence of checks and bets and raises, as well as sizings. And mm-hmm. I think people should be more interested and also more willing to explore other parts of the game tree. Like, for example, I always, I'm always looking for times to check call lead. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I just think it's the type of thing that induces a lot of mistakes. And I think, you know, one example is if in like a three bet pot where in a three bet pot where I have a hand like ace king or sorry, ace queen, I think it's a good time to just lead flop and really piss some people off since it's, it's actually, wait, wait, what was the flop again? Oh, you said an ace high flop, like an ace high dry, particularly like something like ace nine, six. Mm -hmm. And when you have a hand like ace queen, just leading. And you're, where are you again? I'm at a position having just called a three bet. Oh, okay. You called a three bet and you, and it's ace nine, six and you just lead. Okay. Interesting. It's, yeah. And there's, this is more of a live poker thing because there are <laughs> certain, there are certain things you do to, because on a large sample, they don't work as well. And if people can track using something like a HUD, what you're doing over a large sample, you're sort of forced to stay in line. And in the world of live poker, these, these restraints just don't exist. And so sacrificing some balance or at least doing things that leave other parts of your range unbalanced, even if you're doing this one thing in a somewhat balanced way, those sorts of concessions are more acceptable in live poker where samples are small. And obviously, if, if this is at your home casino and you're playing against these players again and again, you have to be more sophisticated about these sorts of exploits, or at least even if they're not exploits, these sorts of changes in strategy to, you're basically trading some EV in the optimal sense for confusion in the now sense. Right. Like the whole mystery and puzzle divide that I was mentioning, you're kind of putting people in a more mystery type situation rather than a puzzle that they might've already looked at. But uh, why do you like, doing that with ace queen or is this like very opponent specific i think ace queen is just it's really high up in our range it's, it's one of the absolute best things we could have and our opponent's range is a ton of bluff catchers that are likely to check back at a high frequency like this this board goes check check a ton i think more than it should are you saying that because you think people it's very trendy for people to three bet the asex suited so that they have a lot of checkbacks with like a weak ace is that why you're saying that or even ace jack yeah i think even hands like ace jack ace 10 offsuit are trendy all these real aces there people in my opinion are three betting too often and a range that's too asex heavy and it makes sense like why you would want Mm -hmm. your three bet range to be asex heavy but, yeah, because, you know, you're supposed to have a more mixed strategy, but I guess, like, in live poker and just, like, the the uh, pleasure of seeing an ace, maybe people are not mixing things up as much and they're, they're ace-x heavy for their light three bets. I can buy that, you know. I, I, I can see how that can happen. A certain, certainly, you know, somebody, somebody looks down at one ace and they kind of just, like, want to play the hand and it's, like, more likely that they um, three bet in that way. Okay, so that... I, I get that as an explanation. Of course, then when you check, you don't have as many strong hands. So. Well, that's the that's the issue, and that's why you can't do this over a large sample. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in certain cases it might be transparent what you're trying to do when you lead on a board that you're not supposed to have leads on. 
I think there's a case for just like tripling with air in this spot. Although I, I don't want to give, I mean, not give away, but because I don't think people are going to try this or the people who I want to do this against are listening to this podcast. I think there's a case for just like tripling on these boards, like just bet, bet, bet. Interesting. Think- so you're looking at like all these different possibilities in the game tree that, you know, it, it kind of goes even beyond like the leads in the donks I was thinking about because you're talking about like leading in a three bet pot out of flow. It's really interesting. One thing that I noticed when I started doing this thought experiment about this hypothetical training game where people were negotiating, buying and selling their powers in the game tree. And okay, okay first question is, with this uh, hypothetical game, would you know what my powers are or would you have to figure it out as the game unfolded? I was thinking that we would be we would actually tell each other what we bought and sold. So you would like know that I couldn't check raise turn, but maybe it could be secret also. But what's interesting is I think one of the most valuable powers that you really, really wouldn't want to sell is your power to like overbet, especially rivers. Mm, yeah. and, and that and I think that's really interesting and important because you know, it just goes to show you can get away with like giving away like your check raise on the turn, like whatever. But like, if you're constrained by bet sizing and no limit hold them, that's really bad. You know, and I mean, I don't even know if the river or the turn is worse because you get to more turns, but on the river it's more important because you can't make up for it later. So I, I've I've been thinking about this ever since I came up with the game, but I I do know that the over bets is one that you don't want to sell. Whether it's worse to sell the turn of the river, I'm not really sure. But that made me really think about how overbetting is not this like trendy like solver type thing. It's just so important to the game tree. And if you're not using it, you sold it, and it's really bad. And you need to get it back. I think especially on the river, since there's so many nuts or air situations on the river where turns, certain hands tend to still be fairly equitable, even against the value portion of your opponent's range in that polarized situation. But that's, for what's, sure, and that's for what's sure so weird river, about these it, oh, go monotone ahead. Yeah. turns. The classic sort of, you know, when is it okay to 5x overbet is balancing a range of nut flushes with the ace blocker. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of the few times where we can perfectly polarize, you know, wrap our range around our opponent's range and do it with, you know, a fairly significant portion of the hands we arrive at this spot with. You're and, talking about like a three flush board. Yeah, usually, on a three flush right? board. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Particularly on the river. Where on this turn, we don't, we don't have those natural bluffs that block value in the same way. And so is that overbetting tool at all useful in this spot? And I'm curious, like with the software work you've done on these monotone turns uh, and then the river, are solvers choosing these overbet sizings? Yeah, not so much on the turn or the flop, that's for sure. Um, on the river, a little bit more. I, I One thing that I really found interesting from working with solvers is that pre-solver, I used to, like, I think I used to really overrate the, um, the nut flush blocker effect. And then I realized that in so many spots, this nut flush, flush blocker effect was kind of a wash because having the nut flush blocker often reduced their check folds or their bet folds. So it like reduced the nut hands in the range, but it also reduced the hands that they might fold. So I, I, I kind of threw my hands up and realized that like all of this like instinct that I had, that those were the best hands to flush to, to 
to bluff with were, were like in many, many cases, you know, just like a wash or even bad, which was just something random and interesting that I've noticed over the, uh, over the years. There was like a really interesting hand from like the main event that Blumstein won where I noticed that, uh, where he like, he triple barreled with the nut flush blocker and it got through against like pocket eights. And like, as I tried to like simulate it on a solver, it was like not even the bluffs that the solver was picking because of that. Anyway, to answer your question, yeah, I did notice some overbets in the river on on this like four flush boards, and I, I it's hard for me to exactly understand why. Um, but as you point out, that that would not be a power you'd want to sell the over, the river overbet, like regardless yeah, of the I board. Would, I would bid much higher on the river overbet than the turn overbet. Even though rivers come up less frequently than turns, so like like you get to the turn a lot more often, but you still want to keep the river overbet. I think so. It definitely would affect, I mean, how big the game is playing is going to be important. To Good point, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of assuming like a hundred big blind. I mean, I, I guess that's usually the general assumption of these types of toy games. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, was, I don't know why I was assuming that it would be way deeper. I guess I'm just expecting that if I ever played this, it would be with friends of mine in like a home game setting and we would want to play a super deep for better or worse. I think in the 100 big blind scenario, the turnover bet is clearly more valuable relative to the river over bet than in the deep game. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I that's guess. That's my hunch. I need, yeah, I need to put some more, um, more thought into this. Yeah, but uh, I think even just thinking about it is, is really good for so people who are listening. I think thinking about like what you're not doing and what you've already sold and what you shouldn't have sold and you should really need to need to implement back into your game is really important. And of course there's parts of the game tree that it's like really awesome to simplify, right? Like instead of having five bet sizes on the flop or infinite bet sizes on the flop, which I'm sure like some kind of supercomputer would utilize having like one on a lot of textures is totally fine, I think. But then when you get to the river, you probably want to add more in because it's like less complex and this is a lot your last chance to make the perfect size, right? Earlier streets, maybe it's whatever changes things. It's okay, but at the end, you you only have one more chance. Yeah, and you also only have one more range to balance. Like, um, right, exactly. You don't need to be concerned about coverage on future streets, and that tends to be a big deterrent towards splitting your range radically on the flop or on the turn. So this hand, uh, that really interested me and, and just watching Mizrahi play, it's just such a joy to watch. You know, he played in the main event feature table and it was so fun watching him. And one thing I noticed is that like, he did not, he doesn't care at all about trends. He has his own style and he's sticking to it. You know, he would, uh, open late position. The big blind would defend. He would still bet two thirds, three quarters on all sorts of dry flops and, I think that it's interesting because maybe, especially with his uh, persona, you know, I really think that, you know, it might have worked out well for him to, you know, use his types of bet sizings rather than try to, like, pick something theory- theoretical. And I guess that's kind of an obvious point, but it was really nice to see it in action for so many hours when you're used to kind of seeing more risk-averse play on TV, 
right? Even when you watch these like super high rollers, you see a lot of risk averse play, especially because a lot of times we see a lot of final tables where there's ICM considerations. So we don't even really see what they really play like, right? No, it, <laughs> it's an unfortunately boring form of poker to watch. In my the opinion. final tables, yeah, those those super roller or super high roller final tables. It's interesting, but it gets old quickly. I find. Well, I like to watch the beginning and then the heads up. If the two heads up players are interesting, like something like the, the last two heads up of the super high roller bowl were phenomenal because you had like Justin Bonomo versus Dan Onagranu, and then you also the year before you had uh, Jake Schindler versus Kristoff. Uh, Right, so like that's pretty fun. No ICM, just playing chip EV, and then of, then of course earlier in the tournament when you see just like how they play a, in the very beginning of the tournament, like when it's really close to chip EV, that's very interesting too. Um, but I almost feel like sometimes it could be like a red herring or confusing to people to watch some of these final tables because you don't know how different the ranges are, right? And if you watch them and you're like thinking that like this is how Fedor plays or this is how this person plays and really it's like hyper specific to like the payouts, then maybe you're doing yourself a disservice, right? Yeah, there's a lot going on and it's hard to extrapolate too much based on what you're seeing. Exactly. And then anyway, this Mizrahi hand, the uh, the low jack, this is this is the early levels of the main. It must have been yeah, was it two fifty five hundred? with a 15k starting stack for the low jack and he limped ace jack and Mizrahi called the cutoff. Now this is interesting the hand he called the cutoff with because you know what what would you reckon his v pipping percentage is uh, after the low jack limps? Who's not like a recreational <laughs> player. I don't know who the guy is. I didn't recognize him. Based on what I saw of him playing, I would imagine it's his v pip I would imagine it's really high like <laughs> I wouldn't put it lower than 50%. Yeah, uh, yeah, perhaps 50%. Yeah, I mean, could be higher, 50, 50, 50 to 55% maybe would be my best wager. But anyway, he call, he calls with the jack eight off. Yeah, I was going to say, I also wouldn't imagine that the limping range is necessarily that balanced in the traditional sense. It's wide, and so it has a lot of coverage, which plays to his favor. But I don't think... He's someone who's necessarily concerned about like having some ace king and some some jacks in in this spot just in case. I think he's just comfortable playing with a wide range that's behind an equity and will likely remain behind an equity and you know make up that difference through fold equity on later streets, I assume is his plan. Yeah, for sure. He's got a he's got a lot of fold equity. <laughs> That's for sure. So Chad Power calls in the button, who's a good player, yeah. with the the uh, the do three of hearts. And Maria is in the big blind, and she checks six five off. Um, there's no there's no spade in any person's hand, and the flop is ace king deuce all spades. Ace king deuce. So Chad has a pair of deuces, and the original limper has a pair of aces. But um, nobody has a flush or a flush draw. And it checks around. The turn is a three of diamonds, which is giving Chad two pair. He bets. Checks to him on the button. He bets. The low jack calls. And Mizrahi raises 5x, basically. So it goes like 1,400, 6,500. But just jack eight off, right? So it's just it's interesting because of the it's, it's similar to the example in that like there's no natural. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of 
there are natural bluffs here because he could obviously have a, a spade, right? But it's interesting because most people in that spot, their bluffs would all have like some kind of spade in them, right? Yeah, and I think this is where perceived your perceived range comes in handy because we we sort of know that he has all, like all the flushes here, and we also know that he has a ton of queen of spades x which is just not a hand that almost any hand performs particularly well against and so i think it's a spot where if people will let him he can get out of line because he has so much to fire with in the first place obviously this can't be part of a like balanced strategy but i think it's the it's just the type of board that favors someone who is limping any two suited cards Interesting, yeah. Probably has all queen eight off plus, at the very least. All suited cards, right? Like, he has literally every suited combo of spades in that. And he's aware that people are aware of that, that he has, like, the nine tray of spades, right? Yeah, he has literally all the flushes. And I've also heard jacket off suit is one of those hands you're just supposed to go for it with. Yeah, exactly. The Vanessa Self <laughs> hand. That's what's, that's what's so funny because like in a way that hand to me was like less interesting because it was just like, okay, I, I don't even know what to think about that hand. Like it, this one on the other hand, actually, obviously she had a read that the guy was not, was not very excited to call off, but it, people kept talking about it and to like me, me, like this one happened like the exact same day and like people weren't talking about it. And I was like, no, listen to this hand. Yeah. It's so interesting. Well, it's the same um, day and the same level. <laughs> and I think it's the same assumption that people just really don't want to bust out of the main event on day one. And Although was, people at this table were really over Mizrahi. Like he was really like, especially like Chad powers was not like excited to make big folds to him. Like, I don't think he was going to, like, let's just say, okay, they both call, and then the river was a five of spades. And now the, I'm just going to give you the, the the pot was 21K, just so we can talk about the grinder sizing. Um, Lojek checks, and he bets almost half pot. He bets 12K and 21K. And that, now, this is interesting, because, like, is he coming kind of, like, coming up with a chance that either player has a spade? Because I mean, he can't believe that they're gonna they're gonna fold a spade at this point in the hand after the way he'd been playing. I'm sure he feels that the the low jack is an amateur, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would think that. And this will be consider, putting him all in. Yeah. Yeah, if you consider card not, removal, not Chad Power, who's he's pretty deep with, but it would be putting the amateur all in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you consider that the amateur is pretty likely to overfold in the first place, and also call with a range which has card removal, which sort of, you know, helps you against Chad Power's range. That strikes me as a train of thought that lends some credence to this play. But yeah. It just, kind of... <laughs> it strikes me as more likely that he's just sort of think, just sort of understands that this is a board that he's in his lifetime gotten a lot of folds on. Yeah, obviously he's not really like crunching the numbers of like exactly how often he thinks people has a spade because it's kind of unrealistic to do that in game anyway. I especially with his persona that he wants to like put pressure on, not sit there and like tank and then make a bet, right? Yeah. What would uh, be interesting to know is like would he have raised Chad if this guy hadn't called? Interesting. Yeah, that is a good question. And 
another interesting thing about the hand is that most normal people aren't going to have a lot of bluffs at this spot because their bluffs mostly got there, right? Yeah. I mean, since most people don't have non-spade bluffs in the turn, it's just an interesting spot where the grinder has a bluff that, you know, most people can't really have, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, the beauty of showing up with some absolute error. <laughs> when it works, it works really well. Yeah, and uh, I, I would, I, I, I did think about. I mean, this is one thing I thought about also with these like four flush boards, whether it's on the turn or the river. Like really trying to come up with the the odds that your opponent has one of those cards. And in this particular case, you know, you'd think it'd be pretty high, right? Like certainly the bet calling frequencies on the turn have got to include a lot of hands with a spade in it, don't you think? I mean, maybe not with, like, the ace and the king of spades both already on the board. And and perhaps that's, like, kind of a large part of the logic going on in Mizrahi's head. Not as much <laughs> as you would think. Well, if Mizrahi, like, expects... It, the the whole play together is hard to parse. Defend? Yeah, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> and I don't necessarily think that, like, it's a good play. No. Now, but, if if you if you suspected that this amateur would call with a lot of ASEX on the flop and then fold on this river, then that makes sense. But you can't expect this river to come very often, and so I guess maybe Ms. Rocky thinks that this is the type of spot where he can get a lot of folds on the river from ASEX, regardless of whether it's a, regardless of if it's a spade or not. And that strikes me as, like, plausible. But I think that this is probably just an example of sheer aggression, just trying to... Working out this time. For sure. And I'm not really defending the play either. I just think it's, like, an interesting situation where you you see that that most people aren't going to have natural bluffs, but some people are. And as you pointed out usually is going to be um, somebody who has almost zero bluffs or somebody has too many. And which play do you like better, though? This play or Vanessa Selp's Jack-8 off play? Which which those of you who are listening can look up if you haven't heard about it yet. I think I like Vanessa's play better. Because it's a heads-up pot where, you know, she had a read that her opponent was going to be find it difficult to hero. Is that why? Yeah, I think it's less... I mean, I wasn't watching her play all day, but I, I'm assuming that this is a big departure from her normal strategy and that there was a lot of emphasis given to the fact that it was the last hand of the first day of the main event. And that's also a board where there are fewer sort of obvious calls and someone's going to have to make some calls they're uncomfortable with to be defending appropriately. I think this Jack-8 spot, once we get to the river, it's pretty easy for our opponent to have mostly hands that they're just pretty comfortable getting in the rest of the money with. Oh, definitely. And I mean, I think really in this case, people were so over the grinder, especially certain players, they were really, really ready to go with hands because it was a bit humiliating being on the stream with him and seeing him like bluff everybody continuously. It was really unreal watching it. I, I recommend people actually watch it because it's a, uh, it's pretty funny. Like, yeah. the whole thing is really amusing. Like, you think you're kind of overwatching live poker. And, you know, Nick and Ali were doing the commentary. So it was it was quite delightful, in fact. 
it, it can be, it could be, I think it could just kind of like, if you're over the poker a little bit after a long summer of the World Series of Poker, um, going back and watching that stream could maybe get you revved up again. Yeah, I watched a few orbits of it, and it's what's nice about it is that I think you're less since the sort of notion of balance has been thrown out the window. It's just more interesting to watch as sort of like purely observational, like what's gonna <laughs> what's gonna happen? Like, is he actually gonna get this guy to fold? And you're not sort of wrapped up in the thought of is this a good bluff, a theoretically correct bluff? Like, you know, where is he in his range? It's just almost watching like a battle of chicken that <laughs> you know the grinder is not going to back down and so it's just a matter of how wide are people are willing to call this guy and yeah, then just totally. occasionally him just getting sick value and running i mean to go hot. from it to go from a situation where you're like looking at ranges in a way that people have turn bluffs like flatly the classic jan the distinction of like how you have a flat bluff and then you have a turn you have flop bluffs and you're bluffing a lot on the flop and then on the turn you're balancing your bluffs and your value bets and then by the river you obviously have a lot more value bluffs value bets <laughs> value bets not value bluffs value bets than than bluffs value bluffs is um, a software wide term that I don't understand <laughs> uh, yeah you know I mentioned Dan DeVoris earlier and he has a video on value bluffs as well I it, it, he it's I didn't realize it was a software wide term you, what do they kind of talk about it how do they Talk about an insolve or why. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's something that's just been sort of thrown out and not really elaborated on. And I, I haven't bothered to get the definition because I am skeptical that like an excellent definition exists at this point. I would imagine right, though that it's not, they're not using it in exactly the same way. That would be right. typical for them. As Dvoris, yeah. And I think it, with poker and language, I know I did go to the Solve for Y training um, debut, their opening in Vegas, and I, I think the guy Matt Hunt was talking a little bit about language mm-hmm. and how if we have words for things in poker, it's very useful because it can give us ideas and make us think faster. I totally agree with that. I think that's really true, but that's also very personal. So something that works for somebody else might not work for you. So you're going to have to create your own language and borrow the things that you like and chuck the things that you don't like and try to, you know, if if there's something that you don't understand, it might mean that you have to like journal and come up with your own words for different things. Yeah, I have to come up with my own value bluff. Yeah, exactly. I feel confident so, that this grinder line is not going to fall <laughs> fall into the category of value bluff. Value bluff. Yeah, I can't even remember what I was talking about anymore. <laughs> that's that's like there's there's been so many topics brought up now um, that I I'm like a, a little confused what I was saying. Yeah, this has been one of the most freeform hand history discussions I think we've had on the podcast. Normally, I actually put like the hand that we discussed in the show notes, and I don't think I'm going to this week, just since I don't see what value would add to this conversation. I think we've covered a lot of interesting and valuable topics, and hopefully everyone will have something unique and personal to take away from it, at least <laughs> maybe the 50% or so of you who have actually gotten at this point. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for sure. 
I think that I came to a lot of uh, a lot of important conclusions this summer about how to better study poker. So I hope that it can help some people. Jen, let me give you an opportunity to. I mean, I I think at this point any sort of more structured inter- interview would be anticlimactic, and I'm optimistic that we'll have you on the show again. And so perhaps we can save yeah, let's anything save more it. biographical for later on. But I'd imagine most of our listeners are going to be wondering where they can get access to more of you. Twitter and Instagram are two places that I, you know, always post the new stuff that I'm doing. And I'm in Jen Jihadi on both of them. I also do occasional videos for one at once. And I am a Poker Stars ambassador. So I'm going to be involved in some promos coming up for the Platinum Pass giveaways for the Poker Stars Players Championship January 2019. So that's some of the stuff that's coming up with me. I'm also very involved in the chess world. And there's a bunch of commentary that I'm going to be doing starting in August. There's the series of events called the Grand Chess Tour. Best players in the world are going to be there, including Magnus Carlsen. So I'm going to be lucky enough to call that play. And so if you're interested in chess at all, uh, I definitely highly recommend you try to, to look me up for that. Awesome. Yeah, I've been... Finding out that a lot of poker players I know are actually just chess players and they're, they're disguising themselves as poker players, but I know chess is your guys' first love, or I assume it is. It's just so very different. I, lo- I, lo- I think the game itself is, is maybe even more beautiful, but uh, the, the element of people and the uh, element of like math and equilibrium in poker is also very special. Well, Jen, thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts with us. Really, really appreciate having you. And yes, we'll get you on again. You know, anytime you have a hand, just let me know. Yeah, sure. That'll be great. I'll come on again and then you'll do the uh, the full interview and we'll do one hand instead of talking about the theory of poker. And yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Fantastic. Thanks again, Jen. Thanks, guys, for listening.